Malachi 1, verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. Will you pray with me? Lord, we want, we need to know you and what you desire in your word. And in this text, we read of a grievous sin. And God, we want to be free from it. So help us learn. Help us repent. Help us honor and fear you. That's our prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You can be seated. Malachi spoke to the people of Israel somewhere around 433, maybe as late as 425 B.C. And this short book of prophecy opens with a beautiful reminder to the people of God. Remember last week, God has loved this nation. The Lord declares that in verses 2 through 5. And how did God prove that he loved the nation? His past faithfulness was there to choose Israel even as he also swore to and carried out the promise to judge the enemies of the nation. And God points in verse 5 to an even brighter hope, the promise that God's greatness would be seen well beyond the borders of the promised land. God will be glorified around the globe. And with a hopeful beginning like that, I mean, doesn't this sound like a nice book? Doesn't this sound pleasant? God has loved you, he says to Israel. God, God has judged your enemies. He's chosen you. He's proved his love. His love, is, his greatness is going to be seen globally. This is pretty, isn't it? So we would expect a very pleasant book to follow. And indeed it is in some ways, but... We're going to see a problem right away. And we're going to see a problem that is as significant as anything you ever see in the Word of God. Because it's a problem of those who are supposed to be following God, ignoring the things that God says are of utmost importance. It's a problem relating to the honor of God and the fear of God. Now because this is so important... I'm going to ask you to do a little bit of work with me here today. Is it okay if we do a little work together? You guys have got to join in? All right, I'm so glad. Even before we study everything that God says to the people of God through the book of Malachi, we need to take a closer look at the responsibilities of the people of God as concerns two very important words, honor and fear. Now, for some of you, this is going to be very, very old, very, you, you got this, this is super familiar. But for others of you, this may actually communicate as new to you. But whether it's old or whether it's new to you, we've got to look at these concepts. They are vital to you and me worshiping the Lord rightly. Malachi says to us that God identifies himself to Israel as both a father and a master to that nation. And those illustrate to the people how the nation ought to be responding to God. Human fathers and human masters, bosses, in general, are deserving of honor. They are, they are to be given honor. Well, how much greater is God than any earthly father? Much, right? How much greater is God than any boss you've ever had? That one even communicates more, doesn't it? God is the greatest father ever. God is the highest master ever. Thus, God is worthy of the greatest honor of all. 
And again, if your eyes go to Malachi 1 verse 6, our text for today, our springboard, if you will, for today, God uses two terms for what he is owed by the people of Israel as a father and as a master. The people of God owe him honor and fear. So this morning, our message is really a single point sermon. Uh, It it, it was supposed to be the first point of another message, but it didn't make it. it. It did not survive the construction of a multi-point sermon. This message, the, the point is that you would rightly honor and fear the Lord. This is what God commands. This is what God demands of his people. So let's see if we can figure out what in the world does this mean. So let me give you a couple examples of scriptures first that the people of God, especially the priests of God, had to know during Malachi's day that would tell them that this is important. And by the way, you're not going to have time to flip to every scripture I read this morning because there's going to be a lot. So you're going to do a little writing down and you're going to do a lot of listening. So in a lot of ways, you're going to have to handle a sermon the way I handle sermons. You have to listen and learn rather than see everything today. Deuteronomy 10 verses 12 through 14 read, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Did you hear the call in that verse to fear God? Did you hear the call in that verse to obey God and see God as the owner of the universe? He's the greatest of all. How about Psalm 22, verse 23? Listen to this. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. God-fearers are called to glorify God. Now, let me, let me point this out right now. To glorify God is to honor Him. Same Hebrew word, actually. Isaiah 8, verses 12 and 13. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Honor God as holy. Let God be your fear. These are the commands of God. These are the commands of God that the people of Malachi's day, those who had accessed his word, they knew this was the command of God. How do we obey? God asked in Malachi 1.6, If then I am a father, where is my honor? If you and I are to honor God rightly, it would be wise for us to know what he's talking about. Wouldn't you agree? What does he mean? The word for honor here, as I just said to you, is often translated in the Old Testament, glory. He could very well have said, if I'm a father, where is my glory? To honor God, then, as a verb, is to glorify God. Whatever God's honor is, is the same as whatever his glory is. Now, would you guys agree that as Christians... We use the word glory often. Yeah, we do, right? We use glory often. But I think that the word glory is a word that not many Christians actually have a definition of at their disposal. We can point to glory. We can say what is glorious as compared to what is not glorious. But to give a definition to glory or honor can be tough for us. The the Hebrew word here for honor or glory is a word that points to the weight of a person or a thing. Think in our language for a moment. 
When we talk about a weighty issue, what do we mean? We're talking about an issue of significance, of great importance. If a person on a committee, we say that person carries a lot of weight, what do we mean? Are, are we referencing their, their girth? No, right? We're saying that that person on that committee has a very important, highly valued voice. So God's glory, his weightiness, if you will, has to do with his importance. Another thing that might help you here to think about the word glory is if you think back to the tabernacle, that tent in the Old Testament that Israel carried around as a portable temple. Remember that there was a bright, shining cloud that filled that tent when the presence of God showed up there? Do you all remember that story? It was referred to, that bright, shining cloud, as the glory of God. Ezekiel also saw the glory of God as a blazing light, actually leaving the physical temple and other places in the book of Ezekiel. In the New Testament, when speaking of the holy city in the book of Revelation, we see that the glory of God lights up the new Jerusalem. So something about the bright, shining light from God indicates to us his value, his perfection, his weightiness, thus his glory. And in Scripture, the honor or the glory of God is almost always linked to his holiness. We know what holiness is at some level, right? We know that the holiness of God is God's perfection, God's unique and utter perfection that displays him as infinitely different than and greater than everything he created. God is not creation. He is creator. He is above and beyond us, infinitely so Listen to these verses that talk about the holiness of God, though. In Leviticus 10, verse 3, Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. Sanctified and glorified, set apart, seen as holy, and glorified, go hand in hand to the Lord. Showing God as holy, demonstrating that God is holy and perfect and above us and greater than us, that is to glorify God. That is to to point to, to magnify God's holiness is to honor him. Or Isaiah 6 verse 3, remember Isaiah in the temple getting a vision of God? Says one of the angels called another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Does that sound funny to you, by the way? Think about this for a second. The angels of God around the throne of God declare God to be holy, holy, holy. You guys know that, right? You've heard that before a few times. You've sung it a few times. What is the result of that holy, 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 three times holy, holiest, holy, God. What is the result of God's ultimate holiness? The result of God's ultimate holiness is that the earth would be filled with something. Wouldn't you assume if God is holy, 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 that we would say the whole earth is filled with his holiness? Isn't it interesting that the text has the angel saying the whole earth is filled with his glory? Same word as for honor when God says, where is my honor? So we can extract that the glory of God is the manifestation, the display, the measure, the pointing toward God's holiness. When you show God is holy, you are glorifying God. John Piper says that the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. That's a good definition. The glory of God is the display of all that makes him worthy, all that makes him greater than you and me. Now God asks about the honor that he is due 
And he's asking about the responsibility that the followers of God have to demonstrate for a watching world to see that God is holy, that God is great, that God is majestic, worthy, wonderful, weighty, valuable. To honor God is to do things that show that God is glorious. Now let me ask another question. This is going to take a little bit to answer, but this is important. How important is it that God be glorified? Or how important is the honor and glory of God to God? In point of fact, God shows us in his word that his glory is often the motivating factor behind everything that the Lord does. By the way, what would you say about something that you said, this motivates me to do everything that I do. Would you call that moderately important to me? If I am so motivated by a thing that everything you see me do is motivated by that fact, you can guess that that fact is something that is of high importance to me. God's glory is God's number one priority. God's glory is God's number one priority. How can we find that out? Let me ask you several questions with scriptural answers. And we will see that there is a consistent answer to these questions. Some of these, by the way, I did borrow from John Piper's book, Desiring God, in the appendix, which is a lovely thing, one of the early appendices that tell you of the reasons God does the things that he does. Some of these are other questions that I found and added as well. But what you're going to find is that in all the different kinds of things we see God do, Old Testament, New Judging or forgiving, God is motivated by his own glory, the honor of his own name. Listen with me and play along, okay? Why did God create people? Isn't that a good question? Parents, have you ever had a child ask, why did God make us? Sometimes you get that question. In Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7, you listen now. You, this is where you've got to learn like me because you don't have time to flip to every spot. But see if you hear the answer. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Did you hear the answer to why God created humanity? For my glory. Okay, we know in the Old Testament, not only did God create people, but God also, he chose the nation of Israel for himself to be his special people, a special possession, right? Why did he do that? Jeremiah 13 verse 11 says, For as a loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole household, house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me, a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. But they would not listen. Did you hear why God chose Israel? So that they could be for him a people, a glory. That they would magnify his glory. So God created people for his glory. God chose Israel for his glory. Now, you all know the Old Testament story of Israel wandering around in the desert, right? Right? With me still? Was Israel obedient to God while in the desert? No. God could have wiped them out in the desert. Why did he not? Ezekiel chapter 20 verse 14 says, But I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. God did not destroy Israel, not because of Israel, but because of the honor of the name of God. Why did God use his power then to bring Israel back? Because he exiled them into Babylon in the 500s, right? 500s BC. Why did God bring them out of Babylon? Listen to this. Isaiah 48 verses 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not a silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Listen to this, repeated. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Do you guys think God's trying to make a point? 
So in the Old Testament, we see piece after piece and time after time and activity after activity that when God chose to do a thing, he was motivated, his action for doing a thing was motivated by his own name, his own honor, his own glory. New Testament then. Why did Jesus walk to the cross? John chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus, the Son, praying to the Father, says Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. That big, important, decisive hour in John's gospel. The hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Do you guys hear Jesus' motivation for walking to the cross? Okay. Why else did God send Jesus to the cross? Romans 3, 23 and following. You guys know Romans 3, 23, don't you? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now start asking yourself, why did God send Jesus to be this substitution, this sacrifice, this propitiation for us? Why did God do that? This was to show God's righteousness. By the way, what do we call it when we show God's righteousness or show God's perfection? Glorifying God. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Okay, let's, let's have some more fun. This church, of course, you guys know is Providence Reformed church, right? Does that mean that our church has been formed more than once? No. It means that we hold to some particular views, and one of them is that we believe that, that, that those who are saved are the elect of God, the predestined of God, saved by God's sovereign power. Well, why did God predestine us? That's a fair question, don't you think? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 say, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Or Ephesians 1, 11, and 12, in case that wasn't enough reason for you. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Did you hear why God predestined your salvation? So that you might be to the praise of God's glory. Well, why did God give the Holy Spirit? Because you know he did that in the New Testament. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Why? He's the guarantee of our inheritance until we inquire possession of it. Why? To the praise of his glory. Do you guys understand as well, New Testament, that one day Jesus is going to return? How many of you know that's true? You ever ask yourself why? Why is Jesus coming back? By the way, do you think you can find an answer already? Just a guess. In 2 Thessalonians, Kelly could be right. 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10. Talking about the judgment of of the wicked. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now listen, when, here's the return of Jesus, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you is believed. When Jesus returns, you all understand, don't you, that every knee will bow before Jesus and everyone confess him Lord? Why? Why will that happen? Philippians 2, 10 and 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
There's a motivation factor behind why we do this. It's to God's glory. Why does God do all things? Romans eleven thirty six. Joe read it for us this morning. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him. Be glory forever. Amen. Okay. What must we conclude from those questions and the revelation of God that shows us why he does what he does? God does what God does so that he might be honored, glorified. He works that his honor might be on display. And just in case you didn't find that to be enough evidence, If you're not convinced by those questions and answers, come talk to me later. I can give you more than 20 more that I don't have time to read to you today. Fair enough? Now, let me say to you that some people are offended by the fact that God's honor is so important to him. And if for some reason you find yourself troubled by that fact, I want you to stop and think with me about this fact. I will proclaim to you That God's shaping all things for his glory is the kindest and most loving thing God could ever do for you. Now, how is the question? God created you. You guys know that's true, right? God created you in his image. God created you for his glory. We established that with the first question. Your purpose for existence, then, is that you exist, you breathe, your heart beats, your blood pumps, your brain functions, you live, your reason to live is that you might give glory to God. Glorifying God is in your design. It is the primary part of your design. The main reason you exist is that your life is for the glory of God. And if that's the reason God made you, doesn't it stand to reason that doing the thing you were made for is a good thing for you? Doesn't that make sense? In truth, Nothing you could ever do could ever give more joy to you than when you actually serve and magnify the glory of God. Glorifying God satisfies the human soul. And so you've got to know, friends, that when God tells you to honor him, he's actually telling you to do the one thing that could actually bring satisfaction to your soul. What a big meanie God is by telling me to do the thing that will satisfy my soul. It would be like, can you imagine, can you imagine if you were leaving a, a house, maybe your, your mom and dad's around you or, you know, your kids are around you, I don't know, depending on your age, you're getting ready to go out for the evening and someone looks at you and says, have a good time. Are you going to turn around and go, how dare you tell me what to do? Don't you tell me to have a good time. Isn't that what we do? When we refuse to do the one thing that will give our souls joy. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. How dare God tell us to have pleasures forevermore? Does that offend you? Are you offended that God offers to you pleasures forevermore? Or are you pro-pleasures forevermore? I know some people I really don't think are for it, by the way, but that's a whole other topic for a whole other day. Psalm 63, 1 through 5 reads, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. What happens when you behold God's glory? Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. 
Our souls are satisfied in the glory and the honor of God. So the command of God that you glorify God is for you the best possible command God could ever give you. In Malachi 1.6, though, when God asked the priest, Hey, where is the honor? Where's the glory that I'm due? What God is pointing out to the priest is they have done something drastically wrong. They've chosen not to do the one thing that will satisfy their souls. They've chosen to ignore the one thing that God has This is such a clearly given command as the most important thing. Like, ah, we're not going to do that. They have neglected doing the most important thing in the universe. By the way, do you want that on your resume? Failed to do the most important thing in the universe. What have they done? They have despised God. And for no other reason than their own sin. It should remind them of the sin of Israel that sent them into captivity to begin with. Jeremiah 2 verses 12 and 13. This is such a powerful pair of verses. It says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. You guys ever been appalled by something? Yeah. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, there's one, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God says something ought to shock us. How crazy would it be for a person to turn away from God to seek their satisfaction someplace else? Jeremiah says it'd be like a person turning down a clean, clear glass of water to try to drink out of a mud puddle. I'm guessing that's not typical to you, right? You, 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 don't, you don't go through the drive-thru and in and out on the day after it's rained, take your soda, set it aside, and get a, take the straw and just go down into the gutter. You don't do that. Why? Because that's nasty. Don't you see that that is the thing we do when we choose to find, to seek our joy in anything other than the glory of God? Let's make this really simple. God has told us what is the most important thing you and I could ever do. Honor Him. Glorify Him. He's even told us that honoring Him will fill our souls with delight and eternal joy. What then must we say about ourselves when we refuse that command? Yeah. God's honor is the most important thing. If we try to take God's honor for ourselves... If we try to defame God's name, if we try to tarnish God's honor, that, friends, is evil. In the garden, the first human sin was a rebellion in which human beings wanted to rule over themselves rather than to honor God. Don't you tell me what to do, God. Don't you tell me where to find life. And all human sin since then has been us turning our backs on giving God the honor due to him. Don't you tell me what to be, God. Don't you tell me that you made me with a purpose, God. Don't you tell me, God, that there is a reason that men are men and women are women. Don't you tell me that you have a standard for marriage. Don't you tell me, on and on we go. That is rebellion. And rebellion against God leads to judgment. And that should bring to our minds the other word in Malachi 1, verse 6, that God says he is due. Because the Lord also asked, if I'm a master, where is my fear? We are to honor God, and we are to fear God. Now, the word for fear really includes two significant concepts. On the one hand, it means fear just like you think when you think fear, right? Genesis chapter 9, verse 2, God promises to put the fear of Noah and mankind on the animals. What does that mean? That means that when Noah shows up, critters run, right? Deuteronomy 4, 34 
God says he took Israel out of Egypt by acts that caused the Egyptians to be in terror. And the word terror is the same word for fear. When, when God did stuff, the Egyptians ran away. In Deuteronomy 11.25, God promised to make the nations of the promised land be in terror of Israel so they could be conquered. Again, when Israel stood up, they, tri- they shook in their boots and ran. And those are all the same word for fear. So then is God telling us that we are to be scared of him? Yes! You don't want me to say that, do you? And it ought to be! Yes! Now, it's yes and no. Because if you're a human being, you should tremble at the notion that you could ever fall under the judgment of God. Because God is holy and infinitely so. We should be terrified of opposing him in any way. It ought to make you shiver to think that you might do something that would ever go against the God who has the power to speak the universe into existence and spin the planets in the sky. Do you really want to fight with him? What does it look like in Scripture when any sinful person, redeemed or otherwise, gets a glimpse of the holiness of God. What do they do when they see God? They hit the deck. They think they're going to die. In Isaiah 6, 5, after that, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah says, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah saw the honor and the glory of God, he was terrified. He thought, he says, I'm lost there. You remember the old, was the old King James, you would say, for I am undone. What's Isaiah mean? He's afraid that he is going to shatter He's afraid he's going to disintegrate, to break into a billion, billion pieces, crushed under the weight of the holy perfection of God. Isaiah was not about to try to stand in God's presence and demand anything. Is that just Old Testament? How about Peter in Luke chapter 5? Do you all remember the day that Jesus used the fishing boat as a place to teach from? And then he says to Peter and the guys, hey, let's go out and cast the net. And the first thing, Peter's like, uh, I'm the fisherman and you're not. You're a carpenter. You make tables. I do the boat thing. And we've been out all night and there's no fish here. But if you say so, what happened when he put the net in the water? It was so filled that the boat almost sank from the weight of how many fish Jesus made jump in. And in Luke 5, 8, it says this. But when Simon Peter saw it, did he say, high five, good job, Jesus, way to go, buddy, old pal. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter was afraid. He understood that for a sinner to stand in the presence of righteousness is death to the sinner. But, Fearing God is more than recognizing that your sin has earned you the wrath of God. It's part of it. We deserve death. You ought to know it. Fearing God is to have a proper respect for God, too. Remember in Isaiah 6, the prophet was terrified. Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm going to shatter because I deserve the judgment of God's holiness on me. But was Isaiah the only God-fearer in the room that day? Who else was in the room? They were the seraphim. They were flying around the throne of God. You remember that picture? Isaiah 6, verses 2 and 3. Listen to this. Above him, above the throne, stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. 
and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The seraphim, the angels in that sanctuary, in that temple, fear God. And how can we tell? We can tell that they fear God by what they do with their wings. They use one set of wings to fly. They use two sets of their wings to cover their faces and their feet. These holy angels who are not in danger of facing the judgment of God because they've never sinned and they never will sin, they still show God proper respect, proper reverence, proper awe. They live in proper decorum before God. They show by their words and by their demeanor that God is awesome to them, that God still makes them tremble because of his greatness. And in much the same way, the other thing that it means to fear God is that when you properly fear God, you express toward God reverence and awe. You show by how you act that God is wonderful and that God is glorious. And you tremble, not because you are terrified of God, not because you want to run away from God, but you tremble, you fear as a right response to the greatness of God. That also is fear of God. So if you're a non-believer, fear of God absolutely should include genuine terror. God is almighty, God is holy, and sinners without the grace of God are destined to experience the wrath of God. But for the believer, the one under God's grace, the one adopted into God's family, fear is different. Now, yes, for the believer, we fear dishonoring God. We don't want to. That makes us tremble. But for the believer, fear is also awe-filled wonder. It is breathtaking. It is stunning. It is, oh my goodness, I cannot believe I'm allowed to be in the presence of one like this. That's fear. Have you ever, ever seen when someone gets to be in the presence of someone they deeply respect? When someone meets their celebrity hero or someone meets a president or a prime minister for the first time. You ever notice people, they get tongue-tied, they get, they get shaky? That's fear. But just magnify that by a billion, billion, billion times. And that's what we have for the Lord. In Nehemiah 1.11, Nehemiah prays and says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. But 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Can I ask you, friends, which is it? Does perfect love drive out all fear, or do we delight to fear the Lord? Yes! You guys have learned when I do those, don't you? It's both. Perfect love drives from the Christian the fear that God would ever cast us away or destroy us, because if God has saved you, he will not let you go. The perfect love of Jesus welcomes us to God as God's very own children. And as God's children, we can delight to fear him, to respect him, to marvel at his strength, to wonder at his holiness, to be in awe that God would ever forgive someone like us. That's part of it. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 read, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence, there's a fear word, and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And now it remains for you and me to obey the commands of our God. He is holy. He is a consuming fire. To give God honor is the reason you were created. To fear him in genuine worship is right, and it is the delight of your human soul. So how do you do it? First, 
If you have never come to this God for salvation, I urge you, don't you dare think you can run from him. You ain't fast enough to get out of the universe. You cannot escape him. You cannot defeat him. And you cannot eternally ignore him. So listen to me. Come to God. Turn from your sin. Believe. Believe that God sent his one and only son to this earth to live a human life to save your soul. Believe that Jesus died to pay for our sins and he rose from the grave. Believe that he will forgive everyone who comes to him in faith. Believe that there's not a single thing you can do to earn salvation, but that to be forgiven is a gift from God to you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Repent, believe, and be saved. That's the first thing you've got to do if you want to honor and fear God rightly. And if you need to know more about what that means, come talk to me after service. Come talk to me this week. I'll do my best to help you, okay? But for the rest of us here, those who are the saved in Christ, what do we do? Honor God and fear God. How? First Corinthians 10.31. This verse would summarize nicely as much as a few others I could give you. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, listen to this. Do all to the glory of God. How's that for a summary? Just take your life and lay it out in front of God. This is the point you should not be checking out, by the way. Examine your life and ask this question. How can I demonstrate the honor and glory of God in everything I do? In every situation, in every corner, ask, how can I show the weightiness, the importance the perfection of God. Husband, as you prepare to say something to your wife about that thing she's been up to, how can you show the glory and the worth of God in your life? Do you think that might change your tone? Do you think that might change how you choose your words? You think it might change the attitude of your heart. Wife, as you see the flaws in your husband, which I know is extremely difficult for many ladies to do, but if by some miracle you're able to find a flaw in your husband, I don't know why that's funny. How can you demonstrate that the Lord God is your first, highest priority? How might that change what you say or how you say it? Children, how do you respond to your parents? Or how can you respond to your friends in a way that helps them see that God is important to you? Let's go formal for a moment. Let's think about, oh, Sunday. It's Sunday, right? What actions can you take to demonstrate to a watching universe, be it your neighbors or the angels of God, that God is your top priority? Let's rewind a little bit. What time do you need to go to bed on a Saturday night to show the watching universe that worshiping your God, that magnifying his glory is the most important thing that you could ever do in your coming week? Once Sunday morning's here, what can you do differently to show more clearly that God is your number one priority? Friends, the question, how can I give God honor in this situation? That's a question that applies to everything you are and everything you do. I just gave you a couple examples. Can you think of some more on your own? I hope so. How do I show God honor in this situation? It applies to how you sleep, how you eat, 
how you talk, what you watch, what you wear, where you go, how you pray, how you spend your money, how you give to the church, how you discipline your children, how you behave in relationships, who you marry, how you sing, every single thing. What labels you wear, how you identify yourself to a watching world, these have the opportunity to communicate either that God is number one or that some other issue is more important to you. This is one of the reasons I so deeply, deeply hate when I hear that a Christian puts a label word in front of what kind of Christian they are, especially when that label's a sin. I am a blank Christian, and the blank is something sinful that they label themselves with. That does not show that God is number one. In the Great Commission, Jesus told us to make disciples. How? He told us to help people come to faith in him, which results in baptism and their connection to the local church. And he told us to teach people to obey what? Everything he's commanded. In John 14, 15, Jesus said that the one who loves him, you know what the one who loves Jesus is going to do according to John 14, 15? Obey his commands. Every single command of God that has ever been given to you is an opportunity for you to display that God is great. What does that mean you ought to do? You better know those commands, huh? And then, when you know the commands of God, when you know what God says about something in your life, ask the question, will I submit to God that I might honor God? Christians, God is a great father and he is a mighty king. He is worthy of all honor. He is worthy of all fear. So fear him. Don't trifle with God and glorify him. See to it that every aspect of your life public or private, simple or complicated, casual or formal, declares the worth and the weight and the importance and the supremacy and the majesty and the glory of God. Not to do so despises God's name, but to rightly honor God leads to joy and eternal delight. Will you pray with me? Father, your word is good. And I thank you that you have given us so many reasons to praise you. And God, right now, I declare that we all in this room and all who hear this message have heard from your word that you have commanded your people to honor and fear you. So right now, God, I pray this. Help us honor you. Help us us fear you. Help our lives glorify you and show the watching universe that everything you are is number one. God, give us that grace. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.